Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. This episode forms the second in a mini-series all about nature-based community carbon offsetting. If you missed the first, you can go back and catch our episode featuring a talk from the renowned writer, academic and activist Alistair McIntosh, which is definitely not to be missed. The mini-series follows an event I hosted in March, with funding from the Scottish University's Insight Institute and the University of Strathclyde Centre for Sustainable Development. It was a fascinating gathering of people to discuss how land use and land ownership is changing across rural Scotland in response to the booming carbon offset market. We focused explicitly on voluntary nature-based carbon offsetting. And this is where landowners invest in natural forms of carbon sequestration or carbon capture, such as afforestation or peatland restoration. And this is to generate carbon credits for sale on the open market. These credits are bought up by organisations wanting to offset their own carbon emissions by funding reductions or avoidance elsewhere instead of cutting their own emissions. So in this episode, you'll listen to a panel discussion that explored how we frame, evaluate, and finally facilitate community benefit from these voluntary nature-based carbon offset projects. We're really lucky to hear from three leading experts in this field. The first, Hamish Trench, Chief Executive at the Scottish Land Commission. Sarah Nicholas, Carbon Projects Manager at Forestry Inland Scotland, and finally, Elsa Rayburn, Head of the Community Assets Team at Highlands and Islands Enterprise, but also Chair of Community Land Scotland. It was great to get a range of different perspectives and opinions on this complex and at times very controversial issue. So enjoy diving into this discussion. And if you have any thoughts or points you'd like to raise, do not hesitate to get in touch with us at LocalZeroPod on Twitter or send some longer thoughts to LocalZeroPod at gmail.com. Enjoy. So I asked the panellists three questions and to to prepare some thoughts in relation to these. The first was, how might you frame community benefit in the context of natural capital? What is your perspective or have you engaged in any evaluation of community benefit? 
And from your experience, how, how might we best facilitate community benefit? So three different questions, framing it, evaluating it, and facilitating it. So I will begin with Hamish, because you're closest to me, and I'll pass you the microphone. So just a few minutes, and then I'm going to give way to the floor for questions, and then we'll break for lunch. Thank you. Thanks. I think uh, the last couple of days of discussion have been just enormously um, valuable and, and helpful and fascinating kind of mix of perspectives here. And I think one of the things that I've reflected on particularly is the, the mix of sensible scepticism around carbon offsetting and the role of that um, with some very kind of pragmatic, practical ideas for how we can actually make this work well. And I think that kind of reflects where we as a land commission are as well in thinking about this at a systems level, but also about practically what's happening around us at the moment and what we see in the land market. Um, so I suppose I, I want to focus on just, or I want to just say three things quickly that just to reflect on the, the questions um, that Matt posed to us. And, and the first is at the very practical level. So if we, if we look at what's going on around us now and what we can do to influence that and shape it, um, we published a discussion paper recently around community benefits and natural capital, inviting responses. In fact, I think responses by today. Um, and that, that is really trying to put some shape around the practice that we see going on around us at the moment. We know transactions are happening. We know money is coming into Scotland. So let's do our best now to try and make that work well. And, and in that, we framed community benefits. So we've suggested that they can be framed with, with three very important fundamentals, which are they are deliberate as in not a byproduct, not a wider public benefit, but a very deliberate, um, intentional set of benefits. They are negotiated and agreed directly with the community, um, i.e. it's not, a, not an offer, not something done to, it is negotiated and agreed. And the third thing is that they are place-specific, i.e. that happens with reference to a community of place. Um, and we think that helps kind of differentiate community benefits from the wider sense of, of public benefit. I think the second thing I would then want to just reflect on is that's okay as far as it goes at a very practical level in trying to influence what's happening now, but we also see a need, I think, for, for further policy work around this. For example, you know, it seems very clear that, or it seems very unclear from some of the discussion around where value lies in the system, um, but what does seem clear is that much of that value will end up being capitalised into land values over time. And if that's the case, part of the thinking about benefits must then move on to thinking about tax or wealth funds, for example, uh, as a broader means of sharing value um, in this system. And, and I suppose that takes me on to the, the third brief reflection, which is that this isn't all about carbon. And someone said yesterday that we're trying to load too much onto the carbon codes. And, and I think that's probably right. Much of what we've talked about and, and much of the, the crux of some of the why this is difficult is that this is actually about our land system. So for me, carbon credits will come and go. Um, over what timescale, we don't know, but they will come and go. Biodiversity credits will be next. There'll be other things that we can't yet foresee that will come and go. Um, so, so for me, I think one of the fundamentals here is let's get the, the basics of the land system right, which comes back to ownership, power, control, benefit. And if we do that, then we should be able to cope with um, investment from whatever source um, that it comes um, over the, the years ahead. So, yeah, brief reflections. Thank you. And just to echo Hamish's thoughts on just how fascinating the last couple of days have been. So I'm from Forestry and Land Scotland. And for those of you who don't know us, um, Forestry and Land Scotland manage about 9% of Scotland. That's the, so we as in FLS manage the land, but it's national land. So it's our as in yours and my land. Uh, owned by whoever we collectively elect to the Scottish Parliament. As 
Hamish just said, public benefit and community benefit are two distinct things. Um, and I am going to reflect a bit on the facilitate part of the question, like how, how FLS facilitate communities in what we do across the land that we manage. So this is on a sort of sliding scale. So we have the, the bare minimum, which is consultation. So all of our land is part of land management plans that are reviewed fully every 10 years with full community consultation, um, you know, new ecological surveys and statutory reviews and all of that kind of stuff, but with community feedback really at the heart of that and community sort of design as well. And they're interim reviewed every five years. So sort of next up the sliding scale, we have we have access, so anything that's not covered by sort of you know, open access code. That's sort of short-term events, not opportunities. We can issue permits for. Next up, we've got the the longer-term links with with local groups that are using the forests and land. Relationships that are built over over time with a network of community um, community officers in our various local offices around the country. And then the more sort of formal end of the spectrum, so partnerships and joint ventures, and there are about 90 community partnerships across Scotland in operation at the moment. And finally, we've got the Community Asset Transfer Scheme, which known for shorthand as CATS, um, and that is sort of since 2015, um, Community Empowerment Act, the communities can, can put in a request for, for a transfer of any of the assets and land that, that we hold. And about and 22 of those have been completed to date. There's quite a few more in progress. Um, and this is everything from what you might expect in terms of community woodlands um, to community hydro schemes, more recently woodland crofts um, and, and others, car parks um, at the ferry pools and sky, for example. So what I think is quite good about this, this sliding scale is there's various different entry points for communities um, to engage with, with public land um, and quite often communities will first get in touch about um, sort of about one thing and then over time as they develop the confidence and the capacity they can move up that scale and sort of grow their, grow their involvement and, and ownership. Sometimes it actually works the other way so they'll come to us with a full-blown CATS request and actually through sort of exploration of that, they are quite happy for, for us to continue to, to hold the land and um, actually are more interested in engaging in, in a different way. And so all of this work is led by our communities team, so um, that's not, not where I sit, but there's no reason why, this sort of applies across all of our land, but there's no reason why it can't also be applied to carbon projects and natural capital as well um, and in fact it is sort of by, by default because it's happening on, on um, public land um, but I think there are a couple of, of key differences and um, that's around the some of the tensions that we've heard around the sort of the time um, so the comments about sort of investment periods and and the time that we're talking about in terms of ecological processes um, the return from some of these some of these things and um, I guess that also relates to the the time it takes for community engagement to build and develop and then the other thing is is scale um, so 
a, a kind of a, a single, like a small piece of land that you could have a, a community shop or or some of the, the houses like we saw on Rum is quite different from managing a whole landscape for natural capital outcomes. And that actually necessitates a, sort of a, a potentially a different type of conversation. So I'll hand over at that point, I think. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I've actually spoken quite a lot over the last couple of days, so I won't speak too much now. But um, um, I think it has been a really fascinating couple of days. I actually came to this quite late, and I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure what to expect because I'd not been involved in the project um, too much previously. But um, I think there are a few points that have come out to me in particular. Um, and I think the first is this whole social license to operate, and it's about the language that we use and that we allow, the language that we allow to be used. Um, so people are using, I have a social license to operate because I've raised money through crowdfunding. You know, to me, that's not a social license to operate. From a community perspective, we'd say the social license to operate is that the people that live on or near that land have some say over what happens on that land. So I think there's a, there's a lot of work for organisations like us to do to challenge that sort of language. And Miriam made the great point about community wealth building, um, that there are organisations saying they're building community wealth. Um, and actually, when you look at the principles, it's quite a long way from that. So I think there's, there's work for us to do there. Um, there's definitely a huge amount of community washing as well as greenwashing going on. And we need to be really conscious of that and, again, challenge it. Um, we had some great conversations yesterday and at dinner last night. Uh, are we starting in the right place? Um, why are we spending all this time and energy trying to get private investors to behave properly? You know, should we not be starting from the place of spending all that time and energy on scaling up what we already know works and delivers the things that we want to see? Um, so I think we're, we're probably beyond that. We need to be pragmatic. But again, I think we should be asking those questions and we should be making those challenges and saying, is this the right place to be in? You know, should we be financializing our land assets and accepting that just as a model? And it comes back to Alistair's point about Duthkus, who owns the land? You know, is it the, the standard life? Is it Aviva or is it the people that live on it who should benefit from it? And I know that's part of this whole conversation, but I think sometimes we do need to take a step back and say, is this the place to start from? And actually, do we need to think a bit more broadly about this and challenge some of these assumptions? Um, but from a pragmatic perspective, given we are where we are, um, I think there is lots we can do already. I think we're seeing the power of communities taking control. We've seen it recently on RUM. Um, we've seen it, we talked a lot about egg over the last couple of days, but I could give you 480 examples across Scotland and rising where communities are actually saying, no, we want to do something different. No, we're not happy with this. No, we want to save this service. No, we don't want to see that development. And actually that is happening. So I'm, I always feel quite confident and when I go out to see communities, hugely inspired by what everyday people who don't have the skills and capacity and resources that all of us in this room have, but people, and it might be, there's a, there's a great project, um, View Park outside, just outside Glasgow, where the community fought for quite a long time to get hold of a really important bit of green space. And Grace there and her husband sort of led it. Um, and when you talk to them, they say, well, you know, I'm just the gas man and I'm just a housewife. And But actually, these are the people that are really making change happen. Um, and that's what gives me great confidence and inspiration that actually things will happen. And it's our job to listen to those people and to put the 
the processes and policies and legislation in place. So the land reform legislation will offer us a lot of opportunities for that. The community wealth building legislation will. Um, reform of taxation that Hamish has mentioned. Um, and I think things like the Trees for Life model is a great model. Um, we should be really talking about those models and saying they do exist. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We know politicians like new and shiny things. They like innovation, but actually sometimes the answers are already there and they're there in the people that are already doing it. So I think that would be my sort of reflection on the last couple of days that some of these answers already exist. Thank you. Thank you, Elsa, and thank you to the other panelists. So um, I'm going to ask one of my trusty uh, helpers here um, to just dish this microphone out. Have we got any questions, please? Okay, so we've got Alistair. Um, to pick up on what Ailsa just said about should we be accepting this financialising model? Hamish, could I ask you to clarify the situation with the memorandum of agreement that SNH released, and which I understand from one of your commissioners who communicated with me this morning, they have not been able to find it on the SNH website. And I understand from yourself that a statement has been released on your website. So could you put us right on this so that we are all on the same page in terms of where the Land Commission stands with respect to a two billion pound PFI and pledges of public money going in that direction. Yeah, no, happy to address that, Alistair. And I think I mean, you're, you're absolutely right to challenge us as, as public bodies and keep us true um, on these things. So uh, very happy to just set out what this is about. And a bit of background, if you're not aware, I think this refers to the Nature Scott um, announcement of a partnership with um, uh, some financial institutions around a potential two billion pipeline of funding coming into uh, uh, land use change, natural capital investment, woodland and peatland, I think, as I understand it. So in terms of the, the Land Commission's role in this, um, it's the same as our role in relation to many other things in that we have agreed to provide advice um, in relation to land reform, land rights responsibilities, uh, particularly community engagement and community benefit. Um, the MOU that came out unfortunately had us as a member of a project board that was the decision-making role for the project overall, um, which actually was incorrect. Uh, Nature Scott have since amended that. Uh, and if you look on the website, it's corrected and it's clear about uh, how the project is running. Um, so, yeah, very happy to confirm that, you know, as, as a public body, we are, of course, going to be able to provide advice to that uh, with particular regard to the, these issues that we're talking about, community benefit, um, community engagement. And I think it's really important that we, that we are able to provide advice, not just to them, but indeed to many other people that are active in this space at the moment. Um, and while, while I absolutely understand some of the wider concerns about should we be starting from here, um, actually we are here. <laughs> um, and as a land commission, I think it would feel wrong for us to sit back and say, well, it's too tricky. Um, I think we have to be in there actually trying to shape what's happening around us at the moment um, and trying to embed some very clear expectations on these things. Because actually some of these early initiatives will set the benchmark for what's expected. And so we really do need to make sure that there's clarity of expectation around community involvement, community benefit, um, and the underlying values, the land rights responsibilities that should drive some of this. Thanks very much. Um, so I guess as a policymaker, I find myself sat in the middle of this debate and our job in providing advice to ministers is to try and balance objectives and offer the best advice and options that we can. Um, we've heard a lot about, I guess, community ownership as maybe a, a preferred or a kind of better model for a lot of this. And we've heard about a lot about success stories. But I wonder what the kind of flip side of that is. Are, are there kind of 
um, other initiatives that, that have gone less well and, and kind of what can we learn from these initiatives and what capacity building and support might communities need to, to kind of engage with this opportunity more effectively? Thanks for that. Um, yeah, we of course we always talk about the success stories, um, but there are communities that have struggled. I mean, I would say that no community has ever gone bust when you think these are all small businesses and compare it to the sort of rate where small businesses go bust. Was it 50% in five years or something? So so there's something in that model that local people really want to make it work. Um, so I think there is lots more that can be done and organisation, I'm bound to say this, but organisations like HIE and South Scotland Enterprise do a huge amount in providing that capacity building support. And also when things are starting to get a bit dicky, they'll come in and help out always necessarily with money but with advice and other resources from a CLS perspective we do a lot of sort of peer-to-peer -peer mentoring so if we know that a project needs specific advice or a community needs specific advice then we can put them in touch with another community who've done something differently um, but I think that sort of the, the capacity building um, that High and SOCI do, High do much more of it than SOCI do, um, is absolutely critical because we know that if, if you have just one member of staff on £30,000 a year they achieve huge amounts um, and some of the figures that Zoe mentioned from the Loch Arbor Sky and Wester Ross study, really hugely impressive. Um, so I think capacity building, I think we do have resources in place. We've got the Scottish Land Fund, which is due to rise to £20 million over the course of this parliament. We've got the Housing Fund. There's the Investing Communities Fund, Regeneration Capital Grant Fund. You know, Scottish Government are really good at providing support for projects. But I think what is missing is the scaling up of that type of capacity building work. And so we also talked about sort of community planning work, so enabling communities to think rather than what quite often happens is a threat comes along and then communities have to respond to it. And it's so much better, obviously, if they've got the opportunity and time to think in advance. So some of the things that we're pushing for in the land reform consultation is allowing communities to be able to say well we've got a real need for housing and it'd be really great if that land ever come up for sale that we could buy it um, but actually making that process more simple or actually we really can't afford to lose our shop or we don't want to lose this these are the things that are important to us that make our community thrive and are more sustainable so so i think it's around capacity building and it's also around enabling communities to do that planning um, and no, neither of those are huge amounts of money you know the general scale of what we're talking about in carbon credits they're absolutely minute but they'd make a massive difference okay i think we had a question we, we had fraser but it was anna but we will come to you fraser at the front i see yeah Great, thank you. Um, Anna Lehman with Wildlife Works. Um, we take money from asset managers and from, um, you know, really some of the more more greedy capitalists, I think, um, in this place. And what we, but we do put it down to um, wildlife conservation projects in our philosophy, wildlife needs to work for people and only then it's really, it's really working. Um, and I can only say, I, like so many things I, I heard today and yesterday, um, I feel really, well, I feel really humbled to be part of this conversation, so I maybe have a few more comments, um, more than questions, but something I'd, I'd love to share. We work internationally, and I'm not so familiar with, this, with the cases in Scotland, but I see so many similarities. Every project is different, but the land ownership types really, you know, we do have cases from around Kenya or, or even, you know, Brazil, Colombia. Um, where the situation is quite similar. And one thing I would say is keep regulating investors. You know, this is really critical for us as project developers, as investors ourselves, 
is we want to have good competitors um, and we want, you know, we're really worried about that just rush out and try to, you know, get, uh, make a quick buck. This is not what we're in for. And there's a few things how this can happen. Um, Kenya is working on a benefit sharing bill at the moment. I heard the community wealth bill is coming. But really, you know, give us guidance on how we do, how do, how, how should we work with communities and how should that work look like in the Scottish context um, will be hugely important. Keep educating investors. Do not give up on this. The, um, we, I've been so frustrated with the science-based targets initiative as one initiative that tries to regulate what net zero targets look like for corporates. Um, and they require that scope one emissions, your direct emissions, you can only offset by scope one removals. That's basically, you know, a drive towards buying more land. So engaging in a way, in, a, in those conversations and looking at what regulates um, those, you know, the, those drivers of demand really and making sure, no, they should not buy assets and something we quite, um, we see in other countries as well, uh, push on, you know, land grabs um, to help with those SBTI targets. Um, and then just sort of maybe more of reflection here, but carbon ownership and land ownership are often separated in various countries. And I you know, don't know what the options here are in Scotland sort of legally, but we see it being decoupled um, in a number of countries. And like in Colombia, where territories have land ownership rights, but they don't sometimes right, have own ownership of the trees, the wood, the water, or the carbon that's regulated differently. Um, to the negative, uh, on an, you know, it's, it's negative for them, but maybe here it could be something positive, um, where carbon ownership, in a sense, could be maybe, you know, shouldn't that be a Scottish asset, you know, achieving the Scottish climate target, and then allocating that also to communities as a way to help it make it a little bit more fairer. So um, apologies, but uh, yeah, just a couple of thoughts to share. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Okay, so over to the panel, please, and then we'll take Fraser's question. Thanks, and it was uh, it was enormously interesting talking with you yesterday, Anna, about some of the parallels with Kenya, and I think it, it is fascinating how striking the, the parallels are, actually, and I, I'm away to go and look up the benefit sharing bill after this. And, but I think, I mean, I, the, the point you raise about carbon and ownership and rights, I think, is, is really important, actually. Um, and we're in a default position at the moment where, I mean, carbon is being traded basically under, you know, uh, on a contract basis. It's not, it's not really defined as a property right in any sense, as I understand it. I mean, this is Jill's territory more, more than mine. Um, but it, we are kind of in a default situation where carbon is being traded as, as a contract, and it is the contract to provide something that is being committed to. So I think it's entirely open to us uh, in Scotland to actually think how do we want to structure these things. And I would link that, I think, to a wider discussion that it would be helpful in Scotland for us to look more widely at land rights and governance uh, and maybe disentangling. Um, we've become very used to all rights and land being bundled together in a single package that we then call ownership. Um, actually, we could look at the way land rights are distributed quite, quite differently. Um, and we could look at mixed governance models that bring together private public community interests, NGOs, uh, in more imaginative ways as well. And I, for me, I think that's where some of the, the interesting uh, opportunity lies at the moment. Um, I think disassociating the rights is a really interesting approach. And, you know, from a, a Crown of State Scotland perspective, we own all the sort of the naturally occurring gold and silver in any property in Scotland. So there is, we have, we do do that. We do disassociate rights um, from land in, in 
Scotland. I think the other point, um, we touched on it briefly yesterday in the sale of carbon on egg. We did disassociate it from the land. We didn't allow any securities or conservation burdens. We said it's an agreement. We will provide X tons of carbon um, and potentially we can provide the X tons of carbon from anywhere. Um, so at the moment, the carbon code, the woodland carbon, the woodland code links it to a piece of land. But I think there is an opportunity to sort of move away from that a bit um, and think a bit more broadly about what it is that you are providing in these ecosystem services. And I don't think we've done that yet. Thank you. Sarah? I'll just add, I think the, the key point in all of this is at the moment we have these, these frameworks of the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Code, but how, it, how, how the benefits are shared, how the risks are shared, that is down to individually negotiated contracts between lots of different parties. And there's very few people that A, have visibility of those agreements um, or understanding of, of all the different elements and implications of them. And yeah, I think that's, that's a really tricky um, thing at the moment is there's, there's so many different models. It's kind of a blank sheet of paper for how you apply these. Um, and we need to take the time to properly understand the, sort of the long-term implications of those and, and, and get it right. Fantastic. Okay. Sorry. So, Fraser, final question. Thank you. I mean, I guess I have a slight provocation as much as a, as a question, really. Um, and that is really just, I want to bookmark the nature of a disagreement, I think, that is kind of at the heart of both today and yesterday. And, um, and I think Hamish very helpfully just um, was kind of frank about that, about, as it were, there being a healthy scepticism and being uh, at work in the room. And we heard from um, Alison and, and Alistair who kind of registered a certain kind of dissent, to use a very Scottish Presbyterian term. I want to kind of raise this question about the, the kind of line we are where we are, because what that line does is to, as it seems to me, implicitly accept the organizing terms of the debate. Um, and I think a lot of that is about the very nature of natural capital, the conception of natural capital. This session right now is about trying to understand what community benefit can derive from nature-based solutions, right? And one of the really interesting things about Tavis's um, paper this morning was the kind of clarity of your kind of definitions about natural capital. And, and, and Tavis was talking about um, natural capital being a kind of an, an intervention in um, the kind of social and ecological order. I would go further than that and say, well, actually, natural capital is itself a specific conception of the relationship between the natural and the social world. And it is one that is itself culturally and historically specific and produces certain sorts of outcomes. It, it is a kind of a, I don't like to use the word neoliberal, but it is a kind of neoliberal formulation of an environmental problem. And I think if you frame the problem differently, if you frame the problem as, say, focused on labor rather than capital, you get a very different set of parameters. Or if you frame the problem based on Duchas or other Gallic cos cosmologies, you really end up with something quite kind of different. So I guess the question then is, if we return to that question of language, that language permits certain kinds of discussions. There was that point made by the economic sociologist Donald McKenzie economics, he says, is and doesn't just describe a field of transactions. It's not a camera. It is itself an engine, right? So that the, in accepting the organizing terms of, of the debate, which is 
founded on natural capital, on nature-based solutions, we are perhaps, my question I guess, is are we just actually creating and sustaining the very market that some of us have misgivings about? Thank you. Would anybody like to tackle that particularly thorny <laughs> question? Yes, yes, yes raise <laughs> Yeah, pro provocation accepted and probably large, largely agreed. But um, I, I think I think also it's clear that we probably have multiple conceptions going on at the same time here. So, you know, for example, we also have a pretty clear framing in Scotland uh, in terms of land rights and responsibilities. So, so why don't we apply that framing to this discussion as well? Um, and, and that might help us find our way through some of this. But, but I think the reality is that we probably do have different framings. That will, there are pretty clearly some tensions between those. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we are where we are. We've, we've got some, we're not in a bad place at all in terms of land reform and clarity of purpose around land reform and land rights and responsibilities. So I think if we can apply that framing to some of these challenges, it may help us find our way through it. Sarah? Yeah. Um, I mean, agree with a lot of what you said in our sort of conversations last night as well. But um, I think the the, the sit, sitting in a kind of operational delivery place, like trying to actually um, deliver deliver some of these projects and and work this all out on the ground, um, we do we do face some really tricky realities in terms of, and they are labour. Sort of as a starting point, as land rights and responsibilities as a starting point, they are challenges in those senses, but they are also financial realities that that we are constricted in terms of what we can do, and so um, trying to trying to figure out how we can how we can mobilise sort of fi financial um, unlocking of all of these other opportunities. I think we. I'm not sure whether it's necessarily the the right or the only way, but it is the tools that we have at our disposal at the moment, um, and we've got to figure out how to how to make the best of them. Yeah, no, and, and quite the provocation before lunch. I probably bear some responsibility, for, you know, in terms of the and, and project team. The uh, you know the the answer carbon offsetting, you know, is, is presented in the project title. But what's the question, and and why are we beginning at that point? And I think this is kind of keeps on coming up time and time again that, you know, is, is this the right way forward? But then, you know, conversations over, over dinner last night, you know, the, the, the reality is this is happening. And if we don't get in front of it, then what damage, uh, what missed opportunities may our communities uh, face? But I think we must be mindful of that question and the language that you, you, you reference um, can either open or close certain types of debate. Now, I'm going to take chair's privilege and end there because I can see sandwiches behind, but I would encourage you all to continue uh, where we've left off. So I'd like you just to join me in a big thank you and a round of applause to the panel. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed listening to that panel discussion. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the discussion, but start for 10. Here are some of my reflections. So beginning with community benefits, I thought a really useful way of approaching this was to consider them as deliberate, i.e. these are targeted benefits. They're not accidental. They're something we're going after. Also, that these are negotiated and agreed. They are the product of participatory engagement with the community. It's also important to consider these community benefits as community-oriented and place-based. 
meaning they are benefits to the local community versus, say, the wider public. And this, of course, demands a clearer sense of what local, and indeed the community, entails from the very outset. However, it's also important to consider where benefits might flow beyond the local community and benefit the wider region, nation, or beyond. We can think of this in terms of carbon or biodiversity gains, but also jobs and general economic uplift. Turning to community engagement, I thought it was really interesting to hear there about the importance of long-term informal community engagement prior to more formal forms of participation and partnership. Like any relationship that we humans share, we must get to know one another first before taking the next steps. Also, about how landowners engage with communities with regards to offset projects should be sensitive to the community's needs, as well as the community's capacity and capabilities that they have in order to engage with such projects. They may have the capacity, but not the capability. Conversely, they may have the capability, but not the capacity. Finally, community washing is an issue that we heard many times during that panel discussion and the broader event. This is where the community engagement may be superficial in a bid to demonstrate support for a project. Associated with this is a term we often heard too, which was a landowner's social license to operate. So for me, this begs the question, what is the threshold for this license to operate? And indeed, who grants it? We must be very careful when assigning this right to development, especially in the absence of demonstrable consent from the community. Turning to the broader policy and market landscape, I think the first thing to say is it's not all about carbon. Perhaps we're trying to load too much onto the carbon codes, and actually we must dig a little deeper to understand how to formulate these carbon offset projects and markets in a way that benefits communities. And in particular, we must focus on our land system. We really need to get this land system right. Ownership, power, control and benefit. At the root of all of this is who owns the land. Another interesting part of this discussion was pulling apart this point that we hear time and time again. We are where we are, taking a pragmatic standpoint. This implicitly accepts some of the organising terms of the debate about the conception of natural capital and the persistence and the foundational importance of capitalism. And using certain types of language more broadly permits certain kinds of discussions. So let's ask ourselves, are we starting in the right place? In this context was the issue of finance. We heard the panel explore whether really we should be building these project and market offerings in a way to entice private sector investment, or whether alternatively we could mobilise models that rely primarily or even exclusively on public and community finance. Conversely, however, we also heard questions more broadly across the two days about where and when public money should be invested and whether actually targeting this at landowners in order for them to develop and implement these projects sees a further concentration of wealth and power in the hands of those that already have it. So my final reflection was something we heard during the Q&A. We must not focus solely on the successful cases of community participation with regards to carbon offsetting more, much more broadly, whether that's issues of land reform or energy. But we must also consider where it hasn't worked. This is particularly difficult to spotlight and learn from. And it must be dealt with sensitively and respectfully with regards to both the landowner, the community and other stakeholders involved. But to ignore lessons of where engagement could have been improved would miss a very important half of the story. So thank you for listening to a really, really important discussion. You have, as ever, been listening to Local Zero. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please share it with friends and colleagues and stay tuned for more episodes taken from this conference. And finally, a plea from me. Please remember to check out our website, localzeropod.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalogue and search for past episodes by keywords or topics. But until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.